Hello everyone and welcome to the Bone Cement Podcast. My name is Amit and with me today is Dr. Michael Katzap. Dr. Katzap has spent over 20 years as a practitioner and educator in oral implantology. He has graduated from New York University College of Dentistry and after completing a general practice residency at Brookdale University Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, he was accepted and completed a a hospital-based AAID recognized two-year implantology fellowship program at Brookdale University under Dr. Norman A. Krenin. After graduating, Dr. Katzap entered a private practice in Queens, New York, focused on oral implantology. He was then recruited to be the general residency coordinator at Brookdale University and in 2001 became the director of the implantology fellowship program, a position he held until 2010. Dr. Katzap has been a literature review editor for the Journal of Oral Implantology since 1998 and has lectured nationally, including the New York AAID Maxi course, the Greater New York Dental Meeting, and internationally as well in Ogma's first international symposium. Dr. Katzap is an adjacent clinical assistant professor with the New York University College of Dentistry, is a master of the Academy of General Dentistry, a diplomat of the International College of Oral Implantology, fellow of the American Academy of Implant Dentistry, and diplomat of the American Board of Oral Implantology and Implant Dentistry. Please welcome Dr. Michael Katzap. So how are you today, Dr. Katzap? I'm good, thank you. So, good to be uh, here with you. So we've known each other for quite some time now. Uh, I'm here in Israel these days. It's about 4 p.m. Uh, our, our time. I know it's 9 in the morning uh, for you. How's your day starting? Today is an excellent day for me. Uh, today uh, is my daughter's birthday. So I took the day off. Congratulations. Yeah, uh, thank you. A, a good excuse, I believe. Yep. Anything planned for today? Uh, well, we're starting her birthday with the Ogma podcast. <laughs> mm, beautiful. I'm sorry she's excited. <laughs> yes, very. Uh, and then we have plans to do things to with the family. So we're looking forward to it. Okay. Any Corona restrictions? Well, we're in New York City, so there's no, uh, uh, no indoor dining. We're going to go out to a re- restaurant, but obviously there's no indoor dining. Uh, so we'll get some food from our favorite restaurant. And then we'll uh, get together at home and eat I and see. celebrate her birthday. We were looking for some uh, friends or family to come over, socially distancing, of course, and all that. With the masks. Well, you can't eat with masks, but uh, we'll manage. Uh, by the way, if I may ask, how many kids do you have? Three. Three so, kids. Uh, my youngest had her birthday two weeks ago, and my mm-hmm. middle one, her birthday is today. And my oldest, his birthday is in October. You scheduled it all together with the Jewish holidays and everything in September. Yeah, it's all synchronized. Please tell our audience a little bit uh, more about yourself. Uh, Where are you from? Uh, Are you originally from New York? Uh, How many years in practice? No, I uh, immigrated to the U.S. uh, in uh, 1985 from Israel. So I grew up in Israel. um, And I've been in New York ever since. I went uh, to the uh, City University of New York, uh, Queens College. Then I went to New York University uh, College of Dentistry. I graduated and then I did a uh, four-year residency at uh, Brookdale Hospital. A two-year as a general practice resident and a two-year more as a uh, 
as the uh, implantology fellow under Dr. Norman Cranin. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a year later, Dr. Cranin uh, asked me to come on board as the uh, residency director, the, G- the general practice residency director, uh, which was uh, about uh, two months after I uh, after I uh, bought a place to start a practice. So I uh, basically uh, decided to uh, start the practice and work at the hospital. It was all coming together. I was. Uh, I was about to get married, and uh, my wife worked in the uh, Downstate Medical Center. Mm-hmm. So I wanted uh, I wanted her to get out of that place, uh, and then I would go into a hospital system. This way, we would have uh, you know benefit as a newly married couple and all that. So I took the the job at Brookdale, as well as uh, doing a private practice, um, as well as buying our first apartment. It was all. Uh, it was all a whirlwind of uh, of events, all coming in in the year uh, 1999 and 2000, right at the beginning of the century. Uh, and so, yeah, I used to work full time at the hospital and full time at my prior practice that I started from scratch. It was, it was not easy. I was doing like 80 hours a week or more, but you know, trying to get everything going. Uh, so, yeah, did that for a while, and then. Um, then in 2005, uh, it was just it was too much, uh, too much time, commitments, not enough sleep. So I uh, I left uh, the hospital as a uh, as a full time on board uh, attending, and then uh, I was recruited back in 2007 uh, uh, to con- so I'm sorry. So from, to, from 2000 to 2001, I was the GPR. Then I then I took over the implant fellowship in 2001. So I and I left in two thousand and five. I was still uh, doing the implantology fellowship, but not the uh, GPR. Mm-hmm. And then I, I came back in two thousand and seven to do just the implantology fellowship, and still maintain a private practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I'm today. I'm still in the same place that I bought uh, in, in two thousand. So I do, uh, you know, my the thrust of my of my practice is, uh, you know, is private practice. Uh, thrust of my income is private practice. <laughs> And implant-related uh, uh, treatment, and I uh, in, about two years ago I joined NYU and I teach uh, at the NYU Medical Center as well with the Department of Special Patient Care. Okay, I see. So there are a lot of areas which I want to uh, touch and further explore with you. First one would be the hours that you had to put in when you started your practice. Is that something that you feel? that is normal for any dentist in the, their start of their practice? And is it related to student debts and such uh, things? Or is no, it just a commitment what, for yourself? Well, well so uh, what happened it was uh, uh, I, never, I never deferred my loans. I was always scared of that uh, big number when you graduate. So I never deferred my loans. I actually worked uh, through dental school. Uh, I used to work as, oh, a, wow. uh, as a dental assistant on the weekends and in my second third and fourth years i used to tutor uh gross anatomy and basic sciences at that time it was still uh full cadaver dissection they took that out of the curriculum at this point but these were clinic like yeah the lab uh, with, with cadavers and we had to dissect them so i tutored that that and histology made me a lot of money and i was uh, was able to pay my loans uh, when I graduated uh, dental school, I had just one uh, loan commitment that I completed paying by the time I graduated my residency. So I really mm-hmm. had no student debt. Uh, my first job at a residency was for a uh, for a clinician in, in Manhattan, 
I used to place implants in his, in his practice. And after being there for a year, he was basically kicked out by the landlord. And that sort of made an impression on me. I realized that I don't want to be kicked out. Uh, so I looked and I, I bought a place, uh, but it was really raw space. It was just a good deal from a real estate perspective uh, to buy that raw space. Uh, I bought it and I, um, and I was uh, constructing it when the, uh, when the job opportunity came with the hospital, Dr. Cranian offered to recruit me. I realized that if I'm going to get married, we would, at that point we were making plans to get married. You know, we needed uh, good benefits and I was starting a practice from scratch. It's tough to pay for uh, medical benefits. It's uh, expensive. So that's why I took the job mainly. That's why I took the job uh, at, the, uh, at the hospital um, to get benefits for myself and my wife. Plus, you know, I like the, the hospital environment. Um, and, um, but I, I, you know, since I bought the place, I needed to commit time to it as well. So I used to work at the, uh, my practice in the evenings. I used to work in the hospital from eight to five and then work in my practice from six to 11. Oh, wow. Four days a week and Sundays, uh, in the morning, Sundays was my only daytime job. So I used to work from like nine and when it got busy to nine, like 12 hours on a Sunday, it was very, very busy. Uh, but I had, you know, I had a mortgage on the practice. I had a lease on the equipment and I had a mortgage on the apartment that we bought. My wife worked, but we decided to save her salary to buy a house. So, you know, I had to go all engines, full steam ahead. In addition to all that, I also went to some uh, practices and uh, did surgeries over there. So uh, I was working uh, quite a bit of hours. Is, it typical, uh, is that a typical uh, scenario? You know, there's a lot of us out there that, uh, um, that work hard, you know, not, uh, I mean, you know, it's just, it, it's yes. just the way Even it is. After many just years. The, yeah, just the way it is, uh, you know, work hard and work smart, but, you know, you put in the hours because uh, nothing just shows up. You know, I, 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 like, I started from scratch, even though my, uh, my parents uh, were dentists, I started from literally from scratch. I, I got no... The assistance that I got was the, to buy the real estate, but by practice, I got, I got basic, basically a patient from that practice in Manhattan that I used to work at. She came in as an emergency, and the one that, when the guy lost his lease and had to move, she followed me to my private practice that I started from scratch. She was my patient zero, and she referred me like 22 people, and that's how I grew slowly, slowly. You know, people kept referring, and that's how I, uh, that's how I expanded. Does it still but, work today? Uh, the word to mouth mostly or nowadays it relies more on internet social media etc you know i probably could get more patients with internet social media i'm just not uh, uh maybe i'm not very savvy with that or whatever but you know uh, some some years ago uh somebody um uh, told me to join like uh, 1-800 dentist which i thought would be uh it's a referral service for dentists here in the United States, mm -hmm. which I thought would be a joke because, you know, New York is so dense. I have like seven dentists on my floor and I have a whole bunch of dentists all around me. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm from Queens. As you can see on my t-shirt, it says representing Queens. So I'm in Queens in New York City and Queens alone has over, uh, has over 1,500 dentists, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So a lot of dentists in New York City, and but 1-800 referred me one patient the first patient they ever referred to me. It uh, turns out I needed uh, quite a bit of treatment and I took him to the operating room uh, in a hospital that I'm 
on staff and I did all this general dentistry treatment in, in the operating room under general anesthesia, which is also unusual for general dentists. Not a lot of us do that, but some of us do. Um, and he referred me patients. And then when I got another one in 100 patient, that patient referred me patients. So, you know, I, I got secondary and tertiary referrals from, mm -hmm. uh, from patients who came in at random. And so, you know, that's how, that's how it goes. So that's a small tip for anyone who's listening to us uh, all the way from New York City or the area. Well, I don't, I don't know about the, the, it depends on the tip. If the tip is to uh, treat your patients right and then refer your patients, then yeah, that's the tip. If the tip <laughs> is uh, sign up with 1-800-DENTIST, I'm not sure that that's uh, still, uh, still viable. As... Because of the situation, because of the current situation, a lot of patients are not, uh, you know, they're not, uh, um, especially in New York City, I don't know about other areas of the country, they're not, uh, you know, going to, to, to the dentist or volunteering to go there unless it's emergencies. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, it could work. Uh, personally, uh, you know, I have, I, uh, I have not received so many referrals in the past couple of months, uh, you know, probably because of the situation. Uh, yeah. But the tip of, uh, you know, treating the patients the way you want to be treated, that's, that's true for to any dentist that you're going to talk to. That's, uh, that's really the core because really, at the end of the day, it's a one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, we, are, we are permitted we as clinicians are permitted to invade the patient's personal space. No one else gets into their space except their family member. Nobody else comes close to their head or mouth except their family member. And then, you know, voluntarily, meaning they allow you in. And so that's, that at the bottom line, that's, uh, you know, it's, that's a very personal relationship and the patient has to, uh, as to allow you to do it, and the reason they're doing it is because they, you know, in most cases, because they trust you, not because they have to. Yes. So that's very important. Yes, I think the key word here is trust. And as you mentioned, putting yourself in, in their shoes and how would you like to be treated? And if you remember that, that you know, you're equal and then you're giving a service, then I agree. I think that's uh, the uh, initiative part of being a good dentist or anyone who's uh, uh, providing care uh, for other people. Now, you mentioned uh, that you, both of your parents were dentists as well. Yeah. That, that's so, uh, back in Israel or before that? Yeah, Be before that and in Israel, my parents uh, were trained in the, in the, in the former Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, we immigrated to, uh, we immigrated to uh, Israel in 1972. But then my dad uh, ventured on that's his own. during the war? It's right before. Right, right before, before the, the war. war was, the, the war was in 73. Um, and so... Uh, um, so he, he ventured on his own in the early 70s and went to courses in, uh, in, uh, in Italy and in France, took these implant courses uh, and started, uh, he was one of the first who started implantology, uh, the implantology discipline in, in Israel. He's probably somewhere you dig around the history books, you'll find his name. Uh, he, was, uh, he was in charge of the Dental Implant Association over there. It's funny, I think the current, uh, the current president of the Israeli... Uh, Dental Association, his name is Katsap. Um, I think so, but we're not related. As far as I know, not we're not related. But it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a interesting, uh, it's an interesting name. So I was always wondering about that. When yeah, I, 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 there I, are not I, a lot like, of Katsaps. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so yeah, so my dad uh, started to do implants back in back in those days, and I remember being in his office. I always played with all these, 
like uh, elements and screws and things and I guess it started something. Yeah, but it was definitely definitely my uh, my first uh, my first mentor, uh, him and my mom uh, for that. So you knew at an early age, except for being uh, seeing it around the, the, the house and then maybe having a few days here and there with him at uh, the clinic, uh, did you feel uh, there is a passion or not even a passion, just an inclination towards uh, that field? T towards healthcare, yeah, because I was very, uh, as a kid, I was very sickly. I mean, every time we would go on like, you know, uh, hikes or trips, you know, with the class and all that, I was always the medic of the class. I had mm. the bandages, I had the band-aids, I had the <laughs> ointments, I had uh, the iodine uh, bottle. So anybody who had a problem, I used to, uh, I used to take <laughs> care of them. So it was just, uh, it was just the way it was. So you carried it throughout throughout your life, I see. Yeah, I, I didn't like you know I didn't see any other uh, any other path. It's like uh, it's, it's just the way it is. And you moved to New York from Israel at about fifteen. 16, yeah. 16. And how was uh, that, that uh, time moving from uh, one place to another? I'm sure the mentality, from my experience at least, is quite uh, different uh, in, in terms yeah. of everyday life uh, between Israel and the, the US. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, it's completely different. Uh, we have, uh, at that time, we had different outlooks. You know, we have friends and all that. And uh, I really didn't want to move, but my, but my parents uh, uh, made the move. And, um, and, you know, it took me a while, but I, uh, but, uh, but I, uh, you know, I, uh, I grew accustomed to it here, you know, of course, uh, the, the benefit is that, you know, in, uh, in, at least in school in Israel, we learn English, uh, at least we started learning English, uh, from third grade. So I really, you know, maybe cause I was a good student or whatever, but when we came here, I really didn't have an issue with the language. Mm -hmm. I just, uh, and, um. The high school that I was enrolled in had uh, you know, quite a few Israelis, and uh, I'm friends with them till this day. One of my best friends actually went with me through high school to college to dental school. We were all, you know, we we're all together all these years. So I know them for many years, and it was uh, it was okay. It was you know it was tough in the beginning, like every immigrant. You know, Queens has the most immigrants from every country, um, but uh, you know the the um, the point is to able to uh, you know see the path, persevere, work through it, and uh, mm -hmm. if you do everything right, things will work out. Yes, yes. Uh, I remember from myself when I moved to. I actually lived in Kazakhstan for three years, uh, which is a former Soviet Union, and uh, that shift from Israeli mentality to a sort of Russian mentality with an American school system. Uh, it was very difficult and I moved as well when I was 15 at about the same age. So the first uh, six months was just devastating to me. But afterwards, you kind of learn uh, to open up. Now, in your case, I think it's interesting because you speak three languages, Russian, English and Hebrew fluently. You have a mixture of three different identities and nations in a way. Uh, do you think it helped uh, in any ways in shaping the person you are today? Um, well, you know, my, uh, my dad, uh, my dad and my mom to a certain extent, uh, they're Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I know what my dad went through, uh, in his life to, uh, 
you know, to overcome, persevere, establish a family, establish a home. And that, uh, you know, that made an impression of me when I was uh, young, uh, of course, and still. And uh, there's no, you know, there's a, uh, you know, th th there's always there's always a, a strive to try and uh, and improve yourself, continue to go forward, to grow, to succeed. That's uh, that's uh, that's part of uh, that's part of our uh, of our DNA. And uh, when when we came here, you know, uh, it took me a while, uh, you know, to uh, to basically realize, you know, there's a story about uh, about Hannibal when he crossed uh, when he crossed the Mediterranean into Europe. He he burned the boats behind it, so this way his soldiers knew that they have to advance. Uh, yeah, advance. There's no turning back and uh, and take over. And that's basically how I looked at it. I thought there's no there's no point in crying about what happened in the past. There's only <laughs> the road forward, and that's how we try to do it. And we try to succeed and. Uh, and move forward. And that's why I try to instill in my kids as well. After so many years, do you feel that if you had the chance, uh, would have you uh, chosen to stay in Israel? Or it's too hard to, to tell because uh, when we're young, it's uh, hard to really understand all that is happening around us. Well, you know, in, in, uh, in Israel, I already sort of had a path. Uh, I, I was going to go to dental school As in well. Israel. I knew it already. I knew it already. Mm. Yeah. So, okay. So, okay. so the path, the path technically would have been, would have been similar. Um, um, I think, um, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's really what I'm going to say because, uh, when I came here, I didn't really travel back and forth to Israel. So I can't really mm. compare about, about the changes. I was here. You burned the boat. Yeah. Well, Part of it had to do with bureaucratic issues, but that's a whole other podcast. Uh, but basically, <laughs> I, but basically, I, I haven't been back. I haven't been back to Israel for almost thirty years, so I can't really compare. Uh, well, you were with us last year. I was with you last year. That's true, yes. and that was my second time. So the, the year before, I was there uh, for my daughter's bat uh, mitzvah. The whole family took a trip there, and last year uh, was an amazing, uh, amazing conference you guys put on. And I'm, thank you so much. And I was honored to to, to be there, uh, uh, lecturing uh, with and and for Ogma. Uh, yeah, it was amazing, and the trip obviously was amazing. I mean, one of the days. Uh, we went down to Elat, all of us, uh, the whole yeah. Ogma, uh, crew and all that. And I haven't been in Elat uh, in 45 years. So that was, uh, that, was, uh, that was really amazing. And to see, uh, you know, to, to be in the Mediterranean, and not in the Red Sea, and see uh, Jordan on one side, and see uh, Egypt on the other side, and see Israel in the middle, it was just, uh, it was just a great, uh, great experience. And, uh, and, and it was basically great. Uh, I'm very happy I went and uh, looking forward to going again once uh, once all this stuff uh, relaxes a little bit. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Israel for me has a special place in the heart, obviously, but I think that the trip really helped uh, to cement uh, what Ogma has to offer both in the educational perspective and uh, community-wise. I think we saw a great bunch of uh, doctors and clinicians from all over uh, really sharing uh, knowledge and uh, and just a good time together. Um, 
but I'm uh, reverting a little bit back uh, towards the, the more clinical aspect. Uh, can you share a little bit more about uh, what you do in your clinic on a day-to-day -day basis, how uh, your, your day uh, looks like, especially now with uh, the corona, did it affect you? Yeah, uh, the corona affected us because uh, in New York State, and specifically New York City, uh, we, were, uh, we were one of the first uh, cities that was uh, heavily uh, hit with the coronavirus uh, here in New York City. Um, and as a result, uh, there was a state mandate that uh, uh, dental offices had to close uh, for, uh, except for emergency services. Um, so, so we closed. Uh, I did see some emergency patients, but basically, I was uh, I was uh, unemployed for three months, which was. <laughs> Which was really uh, strange, you know. After uh, having a certain schedule, all of a sudden, uh, oh, there's no schedule, or or a, or, a, uh, or an occasional schedule, an inconsistent schedule. Um, so it definitely affected the practice. Um, for, from a staff perspective, and uh, you know, obviously patient patient perspective, and how we manage the workflow in the in the in the office and all that. Now, uh, since the end of June, we're sort of uh, um, going back into the groove, some I know from colleagues, some uh, dentists are almost quote unquote back to normal, and others are still uh, in, a, in a variable schedule. Uh, personally, for me, I am not back to normal. Uh, you know, there's I know there's offices where they just uh, seat patients six feet apart uh, in the waiting area, but but treat everybody in the same rooms. Um, I am sort of more strict about it. I, uh, I, I personally do not allow anybody into my office unless they have an appointment. So I see uh, one patient at a time. Uh, once that patient leaves and the office is disinfected, the next patient uh, comes in. Of course, we're uh, myself and my assistant are with uh, the full uh, personal protection equipment and all that. So the workflow slowed down a little bit because of, you know, we can't see multiple people, uh, but, um, but it's okay. You know, I find it a little bit more relaxing actually. Um, cause I know nobody's waiting for me in the waiting room and I don't have to sort of, uh, rush the appointments are longer because of all the uh, situation. Uh, and, uh, I try to do sort of more procedures per patient. You know, we, we talk about it with the patient if they're willing to uh, do more procedures uh, per appointment. So that's how we plan it. So, uh, you know, we see less patients, but for a longer period of time, trying to do more procedures for them uh, to shorten their treatment plan, to shorten their reason for coming to the office multiple times and so on and so forth. I see. And, and, uh... and as soon as we opened up, I started using Ogma again. <laughs> you know, it was like, uh, I guess all these pent up uh, surgeries that were waiting for the past three months, uh, you know, I've showed up uh, and uh, just last, uh, last Sunday, I think I used like six or eight uh, syringes of Ogma on all these, uh, on the two or three people. It's like a lot of, a lot of Ogmas going on. So I guess that's good. <laughs> that's definitely good for the company. I think that uh, uh, people still need uh, dentistry, even though uh, some uh, folks in the government uh, tried to limit it, uh, both uh, here in Israel and I know in the US there were some uh, limitations and a lot of talking about closing up and it's not an emergency, it is an emergency, 
things like that. But now you're basically open as long as you are under the restrictions, there is no uh, limitations. Yeah, now we are we are able to uh, to resume uh, quote unquote normal operations. Uh, uh, New York is one of the f uh, one of the few states that uh, the percentage of uh, of the pandemic is significantly reduced. Uh, and uh, I like uh, how, our, how our authorities were managing it. They, you know, slowly based on facts, they were uh, releasing more and more uh, restrictions. Um, Still, some patients are not comfortable, uh, you know, coming in. They don't really, uh, it, it, you know, it, it could be a, it could be a, a bunch of different reasons. Uh, you know, one is obviously the commute to the to the practice. So if people have to take public transportation, and don't feel comfortable with it, mm -hmm. I get it. They can't come in. Other patients, you know, are afraid to come in to the office, which is really that's the logical part because in most offices. Or at least in my office, uh, I, you know, and I informed that to all my patients, you know, with communications via email or uh, other uh, other uh, forms of uh, of communication. I informed them that we only allow one patient at a time, and uh, obviously we're using uh, personal protection equipment. So the infection cannot come in from us. When you see us, we're masked, gloved, and gowned. So really, the infection, the source of the infection is the patient. Uh, and But a lot of them don't get it, uh, which is fine. You know, they don't, sometimes, you know, fear is not really logical. So if they don't want to come in, that's okay. But just like you mentioned before, that patients need dentistry. Yes, the problem is that when they get to the need, you know, you don't need a cleaning. I mean, it's a good idea to have it, but you don't need it. True. You don't need a filling. You don't need a filling, but it's a good idea to have it. But you don't need it. But when you have pain, or something breaks, or something hurts, then you need it. And so then there's an urgency. Can I come in now? And mm. with the new protocol, sometimes you cannot come in now, because uh, if you come in now and then somebody uh, and somebody being treated for another emergency and they had a history of uh, COVID and you have to disinfect the office and all that other things that, uh, that that come along with it, you can't see somebody right now. There's no more. Let me squeeze you in between patient A and patient B. There's no more squeezing. It's uh, you know there's protocols that have to be followed, or at least I think they should be followed. And so, um, you know, availability of appointments really quickly, it, it's very difficult to get. I, you know, in, in my opinion. So that's why patients should not wait till they need the dentist. Um, that could become a problem. I mean, the first week that I've opened, I had three patients that came in with fractured implants or fractured abutments because things started moving and it wasn't hurting them. Mm. Uh, so they didn't bother calling. <laughs> they didn't bother calling. Uh, but then when things broke, they called. And by that time, you know, you can't fix anything. It has to be more complicated. So, so you, you would like things to go back to how they used to be? There's no, there's no way. I don't see... Anytime in the near future, it's going to go back like it used to be. Maybe after a vaccine comes out, then it'll be possible. Uh, but uh, right now, you know, um, yeah, the, when, there's no proof. There's no proof of of of, of infection from a, from a dental office to a patient. I got that. That's that's all okay. Uh, but there's certain uh, you know recommendations and guidelines in place. 
Um, and you know, if if the percentage of of infection or if the if they come out with a vaccine, maybe things will go back to being more. I mean, I personally, I don't like it being hectic. I like it relaxed, just the way it is. Um, I just don't that you know. I, I I just don't want patients to, and not just my patient, any patient. I just don't want people to suffer necessarily because they are afraid of something that's not really accurate. I mean, you can go mm-hmm. to the dentist and you'll be treated just fine. Uh, but a lot of people have uh, have uh, you know fear or because of misinformation or uh, misguidance, and that that actually affects them uh, in a negative way. So, and we'll and winter is coming as well. So there is another. Uh, yeah, winter is coming. So if people will get a little sneeze, they will not know if they're sneezing because of a cold or sneezing because of Corona. Um, who knows? We'll see. Uh, we're we're uh, we're crossing fingers. I think here in Israel, even though the numbers have been going up uh, relatively in the patient uh, confirmed cases. Uh, death toll is quite low, so everybody is uh, feeling that it should be okay, but uh, we're still uh, waiting to see how things unfold around the world. Uh, in the U.S., I see, I hear many, many different uh, uh, news coming in, so it's hard to tell. It's a big country, uh, but nonetheless, hopefully, uh, maybe after the winter uh, things will settle down and as you mentioned with the vaccination that uh, hopefully will come out uh, will in a way go back to how it used to be with of course some limitations you know during uh, i had a few emergency patients during uh, this pandemic and uh, you know people came in because their teeth were breaking maybe they were grinding them or whatever uh, i had to ex- do some extractions and people want to restore their teeth oh can i can I have an implant or can I, you know, do it after, after the pandemic? And, you know, I really wasn't, you know, even though I had the, the hoods and the, the masks and the respirators, I mean, we're doing this, uh, people are not going to see what, uh, how we're talking, but if you see my background picture with my respirator yeah. and my hood and my light, yeah, I look like an alien. Uh, <laughs> so that's how I used to treat people and I wanted to minimize the, the splatter so one of the things that i that i that came in really handy you know you do an extraction and i even if it's a surgical extraction i i employed other things to minimize the uh, aerosol and all that to make it uh, less aerosolized extraction like no surgical handpiece or anything like that they use something called a magnetic mm-hmm. mallet you know whatever to extract the teeth but then ogma is really was really the way to go for me i mean i as you know, the reason, part of the reason I'm here with the Pasca with you is because I've been using Ogma for many years. But during this pandemic, it was perfect. Take the tooth out, no need for flaps, no need for tacks. You know, what we always preach came in handy. I could have done, you know, I was doing extractions and grafts without uh, flapping huge flaps to tack membranes or to secure membranes or to dissect things out or to pull uh, flaps, you know, minimize the bleeding, minimize the the procedure time, extract the tooth, inject the augma, see you after the quarantine is over, let's <laughs> place an implant. Or do the implant at the same time and, 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 and do the augma. So, you know, things worked out really well. And if we, we were comparing augma to what you learned in school or what you, you did before uh, uh, learning about augma, 
how, how does that uh, come in, in hand uh, if you were talking about Quran or in general? What, what, what was for you the, the change in, in concept? Uh, so, <clears throat> actually, the, the first time I used uh, calcium sulfate uh, intraorally was uh, totally not for, uh, was actually in my residency. I was, uh, I, was, uh, the, I was chief resident of the GPR second year, and I was called in uh, to see a patient on the floor that was uh, bleeding from, uh, from a traumatized uh, oral tumor. He was supposed to go for surgery, not under our, not, not under our service. Tumor was somewhere between two teeth, and uh, he was just oozing blood out of it because he traumatized it or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't remember what happened. It was obviously many years ago. But uh, I tried to inject the, that soft tissue with uh, some, uh, you know, dental anesthetic with epinephrine to try to stop the bleeding. And I stood there in his bedside. It's a Friday after Friday evening. Within pressure, I could not stop the bleeding. And uh, uh, probably if I had, if I had periopack, something that could stay maintain the pressure there would have stopped the bleeding, but we didn't have that in the department. So I, I don't know what came over me, but I thought maybe I'll try some plaster, <laughs> which is basically plaster of Paris, which we use for models, but is also the basis of the Ogma graft, right? But this is way before Ogma. This is like- Thinking outside the box. 1997, uh, you know, so I, I went downstairs and, uh, it's, it's a fast set plaster. I took some syringes or something called like a, a polycatheter, which is like a rubber tube to basically like injecting uh, sour cream or, or cream into a cake. And it took me like six, seven tries to be able to time it properly to mix the cement, to mix the plaster, to put in the syringe and to syringe it into the, into that wedge it into the mouth there and help have it set in the mouth. And so it worked. I was able to uh, stop the bleeding. Um, probably for about two days and later it, it, it flaked off, but it was good enough uh, at that time. Uh, and then when I saw years later, the, uh, the advertisement for the bond appetite, I saw it by coincidence on LinkedIn, I decided to, uh, to buy it and try it. And, uh, and then I looked at uh, Dr. Yahav's uh, YouTube lecture for 90 minutes. Uh, a few months later, when I actually met him, and I told him that I watched that lecture. He's like, I think you're the only one in the world who watched me on YouTube for 90 minutes. <laughs> no, but, but back uh, then, you know, I, nowadays yeah. I'm sure there are a few more. Right, right. Uh, yeah, this was like 2000 and uh, I think 15 or something like that. Yeah, that's um, early days yeah, in the US. Yeah. yeah. So I uh, so because I wanted to learn about the material, I wanted to go and learn to the and the, on on the molecular level. How mm -hmm. I can apply it uh, intraorally, uh, or how it works intraorally, um, and uh, and yeah, I've been using it, been using it uh, ever since. <clears throat> I started with uh, with simple uh, socket grafts, uh, and uh, you know I realized that I get bone when I re-enter the area, uh, and then I expanded uh, the use to to other uh, clinical situations, as you know, as you've seen from uh, all my uh, my videos and all that. Uh, and so now that's basically what I use pretty much 90, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, nine percent of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I like, for, besides the fact that the material works, I like, first of all, the speed of delivery. 
I like that it's in, in, in the syringe. You know, I, I mentioned earlier, I do surgeries in other locations. And okay. uh, sometimes those offices are not, uh, the rooms maybe are not large enough for me or whatever. Uh, and the time you spend scooping out the, the particles from the little vial, you know, all that time, it's all time that makes, so I, I want everything in a syringe. I want it fast and I want it, I want to be out of there. Um, and, uh, so even, even allograft that I have in the office, which is basically almost not being used or not much, whatever, even that is, is in a syringe. I want to be able to deploy the graft fast and get closure of it, over it fast if I can and be, and be done with it. So, so that's why my go-to graft and even my assistant, she's like, oh, is this going to be an Ogma? Can I bring the Ogma? Because she knows that with Ogma, you know, we can finish the case faster and she doesn't have to like, deal with a lot of instrumentation. So that's basically the go-to, uh, the go-to material. Uh, so why do you think, uh, we hear a lot from many clinicians out there, the reluctancy in uh, uh, allowing themselves doing a minimal invasive flap reflection and uh, most especially uh, using a membrane for so many uh, they insist that a membrane is a must and it's a, it will help with the, the outcome of the, the graft. Okay, so I, I, there's probably a couple of reasons. One of them, is, I think, is very simple. Even right now, when, when I was talking to you, when we're talking, we say, uh, oh, use Ogma, use Ogma, use Ogma. But we don't only use Ogma. We use biphasic calcium sulfate mixed with hydroxy uh, appetite. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you'll see, you can see other clinicians, they're like, oh, do you use uh, this brand of allograft? Is this better than this brand of allograft? Is this so at the end of the day, it's all allograft or it's all xenograft. So a lot of clinicians, you know, uh, maybe because they're, they're young or because they're just they're focusing on, on brand, they don't, they don't delve into the microscopic level. They don't realize that it's all, if allograft means bone that comes from a human being. So yeah. in most cases, in most cases, uh, that uh, allograft is all the same. If the patients are screened properly, it's still a human being. There's no difference between this human being and that human being when you grind their bone. So now the, uh, the clinician has to, has to realize uh, what's best for that area when they're putting that graft. And in most in most uh, treatment uh, in most training programs, they're trained to use, you know, mineralized, mineralized cortical or cancellous. That's what they're being taught because their teachers don't know about other materials. Or maybe there's a company that sponsors that program. Oh, I'll give you samples. Uh, you talk about my. And we used to do it all the time in my in, in my residency. It was great. We get like you know good food and uh, some particular graft and we would use it and, and it works you know it works because the patient comes in two weeks for follow-up and he's healing well and then you open up and there's some bone there so so it works so it takes them a while to to change the paradigm and in the in the institutions you know you guys are a small company so in the institution it's not really changing yet you know I, i'm sure there are I'm sure there are, and I know there are developments in bone grafting and bone healing in the orthopedic field, 
yep. uh, that are happening in the background and that they will eventually impact, you know, oral surgery and then they will trickle down to, you know, uh, dental oral implantology. So uh, that, that shift from grinding humans for, <laughs> for bone or grinding council bone, that at some point is going to come to an end. Uh, it's just that Ogma uh, in the U.S. is at the forefront of it, but, you know, you're still small, so a lot of people you don't see it. And once they begin to see it and begin to use it and actually decide to stick with the learning curve, um, you know, they see the results. In the beginning, you know, it, it, it looks simple, but of course, like with everything else, there's specific nuances uh, that you have to follow to make it successful. If you use the, uh, the approach of the particular graph with Ogma, it's not gonna work. It, it, even, it, it, it didn't even work for us. I mean, I spend hours speaking with uh, Dr. Yahav in all hours of the night, uh, you know, figuring out uh, and discussing uh, various protocols and adaptations and variations and what to use and where to use. And we would argue and we would agree, uh, you know, and I'm sure he did that with uh, Dr. Baranis and other clinicians that were, uh, you know, that were involved and were willing to take the, you know, the, the, uh, the chances of, of using it in, in their practices for their patients uh you know to to basically get best results you know and 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 here's a here's a here is a disadvantage slash advantage even if you don't get the result there's no infection that's the most amazing thing like oh that's well the, the graph the, the graph didn't work out well what do you mean it didn't work out yeah it didn't work out because we didn't get bone it didn't work out maybe maybe because you didn't get enough of a volume but there's no infection, there was no pain, there was no, nothing stinking in the mouth. Mm -hmm. So even, even, even when things don't quote unquote work out, they still work out better than they, uh, than with a, uh, with a failed uh, allograph or xenograph, which is basically creates a, a huge place of infection. But in most cases, you know, I find the graph to be, uh, you know, working, working as advertised basically. Mm -hmm. So you did say that, that there was a learning curve. Now, can you compare your experiences uh, from using it in your first cases to how you use it today? And uh, what would be the best advice that you would give any clinician who is accustomed to using a particular uh, concellus, uh, et cetera, grafts, and now wants to uh, uh, move forward and use Ogma? Okay, well, the... Uh... It, it really depends on the case, you know, it really depends on the case that you're trying to apply this to. So let's start with basic socket grafts. Um, um, on socket grafts, I, uh, I really compress it a lot. That's really one of the, uh, one of the things here. I, I inject it under pressure. So I'm talking about bond appetite right now, the red box, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I inject it under pressure. I press over it with, uh, with the gauze, and then I add an additional, uh, additional couple of seconds of pressure with the blunt-ended instrument over that gauze. So I really compact the graft tight. Um, not, really, not really to drive it all the way down to the apex of the socket. That's not what I'm looking for. 
but I'm looking for a cohesive cement matrix. The shorter the distance between those uh, plaster particles at placement, I think the better bone you would get. Uh, because, uh, because the conversion to bone um, depends on the concentration of calcium ions when this material dissolves. And so I'm trying, you know, we're all trying to, to basically shorten the distance between those uh, particles of, uh, of, of calcium uh, sulfate in order for the distance between the calcium ions to be shorter. So everything, mm -hmm. the whole matrix has to be condensed and dense to allow the blood when it dissolves the material to uh, to have a, a uh, to be to create basically an ionic concentration that will signal the body to pull in resources into that area, and the the more signaling there is in one specific area, the more uh, bone type signals will be attracted to that area. That's really how I look at it on a okay. on a microscopic level. So that's why I'm trying to condense it as much as I can. That's, that's one. really, uh, that, that's, uh, that's one. Yeah. Now, now after we condensed it, we got to keep it there. So let's say, let's take a, a molar site, which is a big enough site that will accommodate the bore of a syringe. And then we can squeeze the, uh, we, we deploy the material into that molar site. And then we put our gauze, over it and we press it down to compact it. And then we take the uh, back of a mirror handle or a periosteal elevator, the blunt end, and we press over the gauze, sterile gauze, um, and we press it and now everything is tight. So now we have uh, basically the socket of a lower molar that's pretty big and it's open and you see all that white matter that's stuck right up there. Uh, by the way, I personally, I, I build supracrestally. I don't uh, remove material to keep it uh, at the crest level. I pack the material uh, almost all the way up to the margin of the gingiva. So I have mm -hmm. excess material uh, on purpose. It, it's, uh, you know, it, first of all, it compacts the lower levels and B, it acts like a secondary membrane for me. Uh, what I do on top of that, so really what, what can be done, uh, uh, you know, people, I mean, I, I started using uh, uh, basically a collagen plug. But uh, I'm going to say something a little controversial here, which is not that controversial, but you can actually use a membrane also. If you want to put a membrane over that exposed cement, okay, that's fine. All you need is to cover the exposed cement. You don't need to pull the tissue apart to tuck the membrane underneath it. It's completely irrelevant. The, the purpose of the membrane or the collagen plug it's just to it's just to keep that cement, that excess cement, on top of the uh, on top of the socket for for a couple of days until the epithelium bridges over it. That's it. Mm -hmm. So so then you you tie everything. The, the sutures go across just to compress the collagen plug or the membrane if you want to use it, uh, which is a, really in most cases an unnecessary expense, um, but the collagen plug or the membrane uh, it, it can be a resorbable membrane it doesn't have to be a, it doesn't have to be a teflon membrane um, 
the sutures just will, will tack it down just to hold it in place and that's it. Um, and the epithelium will guide, will glide over it or underneath it and then, um, and then we'll create the seal and then that's it. And then the socket underneath will convert to bone. That's usually how it works. Uh, so of course your clinicians say, oh, I came back and everything was washed out. Okay, that's possible. Uh, things get washed out for several reasons could be washing out a the patient was playing with it You know, it's normal the patient could be putting their tongue there and all that uh, B um, The sutures got loose uh, So either use long-term resorbable sutures or use non-resorbable sutures uh, uh, C uh, Which happened the patient pulled the cheek just to take a look at what's going on disturb mm -hmm. the area uh, four, yes, there was uh, the collagen plug. Uh, instead of a collagen plug, uh, a gel foam was used. That's useless. Uh, that will dissolve in a day or two, and whatever is there will wash out. Uh, three, the membrane was displaced, and yes, the material, the material has washed out. Let's say you're looking at it, and the material is washed out. So that's on a macroscopic level. What didn't, what didn't get washed out, is the bone cement that stuck to the walls of the socket mm -hmm. that did not get washed out the blood supply to the socket comes from those walls the material is embedded in the marrow of that socket so the signaling is going on what got washed out is the center is the center of the cement that the blood didn't reach there yet yeah. you know it comes in from around inward that get washed out. So what I do, I leave it alone. Leave the socket alone. Don't go digging around it. I'm, this I'm talking about a case that he comes in, the patient is, says uh, a lot of stuff came out. You look inside, the material was washed out, what looks like washed out, uh, and there's no pain. If there's pain, it's a different story. Researcher, yes. and, uh, anything on top, or just leave it completely as I it is? personally. I personally would leave it alone. The area okay. is healing. The area is healing. If you introduce trauma to it, you're just going to interfere with it. Okay? Leave it alone. Deal with whatever you get later. And what you're going to get, I think what you're going to get in most cases, is you're going to sock it with bone that you have to put an implant into. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just leave it alone. If there's no infection, and, there will, and rarely will you see an, an infection, it will look, the gum around it, and I showed in some of my presentations and in my, in my webinar with, I showed cases where the patient came in and it was open, but the margins of the gingiva, the margin of the keratinized tissue are all pink. So the area is healing. Just leave it alone. And in most cases, it should be fine. And in your experience, you had more than a case or two that you came back and found enough bone that uh, yeah. you could... Yes. Yes, uh, I mean uh, another another little thing that I differ with uh, with uh, what uh, Dr. Yav recommends. I go in a little bit later. I don't open up the area and I don't go in at three months. Mm -hmm. um, I go in at, uh, at at four months and sometimes later. But most most cases I, I go in at four months, um, and uh, and if the and I find it fine. You know, I, uh, I place uh, implants at, at a practice where the, the, doctor, uh, the doctor has been grafting uh, with uh, 
but he does the good grafts and I do uh, the implants, unless it's a sinus lift. So the, the doctor has been grafting his sockets with uh, particulate. And uh, <clears throat> years ago, I uh, basically uh, turned him over to Ogma and he's been uh, using uh, Ogma since for the past, I don't know, four mm-hmm. or five years. Uh, and uh, again, we're saying Ogma, right? Uh, which is good. So, um, and so once I, once I uh, explained, I used to go in there and the bone would be mush. And once I went over the, the compaction and how to pack it and all that, and change his sutures, he used to use chromic. Uh, sorry, he used to use plain gut. Uh, okay. Once he, uh, once he changed the protocols, yeah, to, to, right. So then it becomes, so then, so then, the, so there's an issue with that. Let me get to it in, in a second. So, so once he changed the, the protocols to the way uh, I suggested he do it, there's much less issues. Almost every time I go in there, uh, I have bone that I can place implants for. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the problem with the, with the fast resorbable, uh, fast resorbable suture is that the flap because it becomes loose. Even that little socket there, even, even if you didn't lay a flap, but that marginal gingiva would become loose. And as we know, we want Ogma to be uh, enveloped by um, by the flap, by the periosteum, under tension. Why? It goes back to the compaction. We want the matrix, the crystalline matrix of the cement to be cohesive, to be together, to be undisturbed. Mm-hmm. We have, uh, if we have uh, um, closure with tension, it helps hold it in place. If we have a loose flap or a tension-free uh, flap, uh, then uh, as the uh, as the graft uh, will start resorbing, that flap will start getting loose, and uh, we will lose the the cohesiveness of the matrix underneath, and that will interfere with our bone formation. Now, for me, it sounds very logical and reasonable, but I know that uh, many clinicians would uh, say it's counterintuitive to everything they learn because. In school, they teach yes. that you do tension-free and you have to get primary closure. Otherwise, it will open up and you will lose the graft. Yes. Well, you're not going to lose the graft so much as the graft will get infected. That's mm-hmm. if you use particulate. That's if you use particulate graft. Um, it will get infected because because you're using organic products, which are basically a substrate for bacteria to to live. Mm-hmm. Right? Bacteria has to eat somewhere, so they eat that. Uh, but uh, with the alloplast, right, with Ogma, uh, yeah. that's, not, that's not the case. And actually, because of the uh, calcium that's created, you're probably creating a, a basic uh, pH environment, which is basically, uh, yeah, basically basic. It's basically, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, antibacterial. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, it's not, so, so the, the, I'm going back to the, to the, uh, to what I stated a few a few minutes earlier, where the thought is not microscopic. Yes, we are working in a macroscopic world, but we have to think microscopically. Uh, once you begin to think microscopically, uh, you know things begin to make much more sense yeah, because you I realize agree. what what you're doing at that moment, and you will be able to figure out what you're doing in that moment, how it will affect months and years later. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, so, so that's why it is. But again, because of the training, you know, the, the training is one way 
and the materials are one way, and then here comes a material that's completely another way that doesn't that doesn't match the current uh, you know the current thinking. You know, it's like uh, it's like using uh, solar energy. You know, what do you mean the sunlight will make me move? <laughs> uh, it's, it's like who thinks like that? You yes, need the yes. gasoline. You need gasoline and, and combustion to, to 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 get going. What do you mean the sun is going to make me move? So, you know, but if you think about it microscopically, there's a reaction that causes this, it causes that, you know, then things begin to happen. Yes. So. Yes, I think that uh, a lot of the time when uh, clinicians hear for the first time about Agma, they are very reluctant to believe because it simply sounds too good to be true. It's so fast, no membrane, uh, complete uh, transformation to bone. And as you mentioned, I think the, the big shift here is that instead of uh, using something which only integrates, which is not a bad thing, uh, we move to a place where we're talking about uh, bioactive material which actually helps the body and give it the environment to build itself. And that's, that's the shift uh, that we didn't uh, really have up until now in that uh, field. Uh, yeah, but... you'll, see, you'll see from some of the questions, well, show me five years later what happens. <laughs> well, two weeks later, nothing happens. The material doesn't stay around. The material doesn't stay around, but that's because the, you know, uh, the doctor forgets that there are they are a scientist first and a technician later, uh, where they're supposed to know the science. So they'll know that the graph does not stay there. It doesn't stay. So. But let me let me ask you this: um, You have a an inclination or uh, just your, your feel to the, the area, not only to provide good care, but you also, it's very important for you to understand well what we are using to the microscopic level. Uh, but I'm not sure that uh, everybody would feel the same uh, because maybe they focus more on other areas in the, the dentistry field and to learn uh, so well about a specific product with the be a little bit too much. So, uh, how should I put it? Uh, isn't it too much to ask for from, from a dentist to, to, to know that well? Um, well, you know, um, so they, uh, at, at some point back, uh, some days ago, some years ago, they write the old sign, uh, they all swore to an oath. Uh, this is this is this is the profession. There's a certain you know there's a certain code of of, of ethics, um, and they swore to an oath, and uh, the oath is basically you know do no harm, which means that you know you shouldn't do harm. Um, that's one. Another one is that just on a personal level, you're expected to do. Uh, you know, you expect it to do to others what you do for yourself. Uh, so um, you're supposed to know. You don't have to know, you know, and uh, maybe it's the education where it's more technical than scientific. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but you're supposed to know. And, uh, and if you don't know, uh, then maybe you'll take somebody else's word about it. Okay. But, uh, you know, when you don't know and you still argue, that's not a good sign either. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people will argue, but they just don't know. Um, you know, uh, 
So it, it, if, if, if you decide to use something in your practice, you should know. Uh, you should know how it's used. You should know when to use it. You should know when not to use it. You should know why you're using it. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be just graph material. It could be a filling material. Why are you using a filling material to, to do fillings with? You know, for what's the purpose of it? Uh, there's a lot that, you know, the general dentistry, uh, dentistry, specific, dentistry in general, in general dentistry, uh, but also specialty, there's so many things to know in dentistry. Um, I mean, you know, anything from uh, computer software to, uh, to filling material, to what type of brush to use, what type of little thing to use, what type of suture, what type of needle, you know, there's like a million things to know. And that's the blessing and the curse. You know, the, the, the blessing is that we want a few uh, medical disciplines that can cure a problem within minutes. I mean, you have an infection in your tooth. It's called a cavity with, a, with, a, you know, with decay in it. We can fix it in a few minutes. But we have to know the anatomy. We have to know the formulation of the anesthetic. We have to know the size of the needle. We have to know the bore of the needle, what kind of needle to use to give the anesthetic, the speed that the handpiece runs, the compressor that runs the handpiece. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that we have to know. And that's uh, some of it we just, uh, we just you know, accepted because it was taught to us. And times, uh, some things down the line we have to learn on our own. So yeah, we start with, oh, it's fast, it's painless. There's no infection. It's in a syringe. In three months, you can put a, an implant. So people like that. And then when they go and use old methodology to use this new material, it doesn't work. They're like, ah, it doesn't work. Well, yeah, you should have spent some time learning about it. Or go to the website and see the webinars that uh, we did and look at the material that we, that we worked on um, over the years and listen to the podcasts anything from uh i don't know about this one but you know i listened to some others you know uh they were really good um thank you and and take uh and maybe take a word for it and do what we suggest and uh see if it works for you because it you know it works for us i don't know so it works for us it works for a lot of us and it works for us worldwide we have clinicians all over you know turkey poland uh uh, U.S., uh, Dominican Republic, you know, this is not a, it's not a joke. We're serious yeah. about this. Yes, I think that if uh, a few years back there was a sort of an invisible wall to cross through, uh, that wall has been bridged, and uh, now uh, there is a, an acceptance, and uh, even uh, 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 clinicians are more intrigued and curious about uh, trying it, and in a lot of countries which I think Israel is now working uh, to become in relationship, uh, a formal relationship, are also curious. So all around the world, uh, it looks very promising because it, it is a true ship and in that field. It's very funny. It's funny. I get, I get multiple, uh, I, get multi, I, I talk with clinicians about this material all the time, but I get, you know, and they, once their cases are, are working out well, you know, they, they post them on these private uh, implant groups that I'm part of. But in the beginning, a lot of them just, they just uh, private message me because they don't want to talk to others. They don't want to tell <laughs> others that they're using this material. But uh, they're all reaching out to me uh, with questions all the time, all day long. And I'm like, uh, you know, I'm like customer support here. 
uh, and you know, I tell them, I tell them things that happen, you know, with my experience, you know, um, where, where I should be using it, where I shouldn't be using it. And, you know, I think most of them are doing quite well, which is with the material, which is great because it's great for them and it's great for, uh, for their, uh, for their patient. I think I had even one who, uh, one of the first times he was using it was on his own wife. I'm like, that's serious. I mean, that's, that's basically a serious that's as commitment. Unless it's mother-in-law, so you know, uh, so then, then, you know that's impressive. They're developing a, a trust in the in the material and, and understanding and the proper application, which is great. And speaking more generally, not just about the uh, augma, uh, do you see any other shift that's going to take place in the dentistry field in terms of uh, innovation and technology? Yeah, I mean, you had uh, you had Jonathan here. Uh, I think uh, earlier this week, Jonathan Abenheim, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I, I think he's, a, he's an amazing, he's an amazing personality, amazing guy, uh, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, he's in the forefront of this stuff. Definitely. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, but that's but that's where the field's going to go. You know, before people used to take uh, impressions with uh, in the '60s. With plaster, they used to take impressions of teeth with plaster. Then they moved and started taking impressions with teeth with uh, some other disgusting rubbers. And then eventually they developed uh, the current materials that many people use, the polyvinyl siloxane. This is just one example. Mm -hmm. We can go into many examples. Uh, but I think uh, the main thrust uh, uh, currently, the way I see it, is, uh, is probably uh, digital. Digital will become... Uh, uh, will become the mainstay, especially with the younger generation of Definitely. dentists coming out of school where uh, they want any, everything with the press of a button. Uh, so digital will play a, a big role. Still, at the end of the day, though, you have to put your hands into a patient's head. Uh, that, that cannot be replaced even with uh, robotics that they're working on. You know, there's got to be a human there within the personal space of a patient. So that, that, that I don't see uh, being replaced that quickly. But a lot of things are going to go even more digital than they are now. Uh, there'll be more uh, workflows. You know, there'll be innovators like, uh, like Jonathan and, uh, and, and other people that are developing things that will make stuff more streamlined. Like, you know, the dentist is not going to have to go there and, and work and, and uh, spend hours uh, or minutes depends on their skill. Uh, developing a treatment plan with with implants, it'll probably be more intuitive. Uh, so you know things are going to become faster, stronger, cheaper. Um, mm -hmm. But, but at, at this point, I, that's how I see it, the, the digital stuff. Of course, there's other stuff going on in biomaterials with the same concept. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The 3D printing doesn't have to be just uh, limited to to metal and uh, and plastic. It's already available in, uh, in protein synthesis and all that kind of stuff. So there'll be 3D printing of various matrices and uh, biological matrices implantation, the materials are being developed to make bone faster, stronger, better. You know, I'm sure they're gonna come up with some sort of a glue where you can put a, an implant into a defect uh, that's horrendous uh, that requires now for you to go to the ramus and harvest bone from the ramus and screw it around that implant to make it work. Uh, now you'll be able just to take some goop from a syringe. Syringe is going to get hard within uh, seconds. 
and uh, you can put that put a tooth on it. So yeah, I I always uh, think back if you remember the movie The Fifth Element. Uh, there is a scene there where she puts uh, a little uh, uh, round thing in the microwave and just click it, and then a second later she is op- she opens it up and there is a whole uh, chicken ready to be eaten there. So I feel that right. in well, 30, well, 50 her, years, everything is going to change. Uh, actually, I'll take well. you a couple of years for, forward. If you ever watch Star Trek, you don't have to put anything into a, into a microwave because, uh, you know, the, uh, the atoms are all around us. You just tell the microwave or whatever it is what you want, and it assembles those atoms in the correct, uh, in the correct matrix, and you get your Ogma syringe with the Ogma in it. You don't even have to ship. <laughs> you, should, you print it. That's, that's true. Yeah. Save the plane and the shipping cost. Yeah. And and uh, I, I do agree, though, that it will take time for robotics to take over, even though uh, there is also a, a fast learning uh, AI that is being uh, worked in uh, all around the world and uh, new developments every day. But uh, before we wrap it up, let me ask you uh, one more thing about uh, the education itself, because uh, we spoke about the younger generation. Uh, for me, at least, uh, learning through Zoom or taking courses through Zoom has a lot of limitations. Now, you are an instructor at NYU, and you are also come to many uh, uh, exp- not expeditions, um, meetings and uh, events. And that we met uh, throughout the, the country in the U.S. So I know that you like to learn, uh, you like to teach. Uh, that is going to change in, uh, for the time being. Uh, how do you feel about it, and what's going to be? Yeah. So uh, I, I spent uh, part of the quarantine uh, being part of the faculty at NYU, lecturing on Zoom, and people were interested, and some fell asleep. Uh, I think. <laughs> I think there's no. <laughs> and you see them. Okay, I, was, I, I almost fell asleep also. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, there's so much theory to learn, but without profession, there's no substitute with putting your hands on an instrument, putting your hands on a model. And then sometimes, like I used to do, you know, when I was the Implant Fellowship Director, for the first six months, I literally had my hands on the hands of the, of the students, putting them in the right angle, in the right position, so to develop, develop that muscle memory. You need to develop that muscle memory in order to execute accurately and repeatedly. And yep. you can't do that with Zoom. That, that's yeah. not happening. Yes, I think so. that the practical is very, very important. Uh, not, not as uh, less than the theoretical, because if you understand something, you know why you, you do it and why to, to follow those instructions. But uh, as you said, you have to uh, work uh, physically uh, to, to get it right and to understand. Uh, only to watch something is not enough, in my opinion, at least. Yeah. Um, I think we'll wrap it with this. I appreciate the time, uh, Dr. Katsap. I think uh, we dove. Uh, dive or dove? How do you say? What's the word for? Dove. Yeah. Dove. Dove. Uh, dove. Uh, in detail about Augma, uh, which uh, is great uh, for those who listen to us to better understand the concept. But uh, overall, I'm just uh, happy that we had uh, to get the chance to 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 further learn more about you 
as a clinician and uh, about what uh, motivates you and how you see things. So thank you once more. Uh, I would like to say thank you for all the listeners out there. My name is Amit once more, and uh, we were here at the Bone Cement Podcast. Uh, until next time, hope you have a great day. And thank you, Dr. Katzoff. Bye, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. All the best.